Hi, it's Liam here. Just before we get started for this episode, um, this was a bit of a diabolical <laughs> technical uh, episode, uh, mostly for poor Lisa. She, you'll, you'll hear throughout the episode what sort of goes down for her. Um, we wanted to get this episode out fairly quickly after the budget, so I've largely not done too much editing. So just a heads up and apology, the sound quality is a little off, um, and uh, Lisa unfortunately uh, where she lives, suffers a blackout and a thunderstorm and uh, all manner of laptop and phone issues. Um, but the chat's still good. Uh, you can hear most of it. Um, so just forgive any technical issues. I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is The Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. The federal government has just released its budget for 2021 and 2022, which, after sustained advocacy from a variety of people and organisations, includes increases in spending in many areas, including early education. But while billions of dollars are in the budget papers, what is the devil in the detail? Joining us to break down childcare subsidy changes, universal preschool funding arrangements and more red tape smashing is the now official, I think, fourth member of the podcast, Carl Hessian. Hey, Carl, nice to talk to you again. Yay, Liam, good to chat. I think I did introduce you this way last time, but it is like, it's like the fifth Beatle, but it's like fourth member of the <laughs> fourth member of the podcast That's is very, definitely Carl. Yeah, it's a very it's a very generous thing for you to say. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you for the welcome, and hello to Leanne and Lisa as well. Hello, Carl. Hello, hello Carl. Liam. <laughs> hello, hello, Leanne. Hello, Leanne. Lisa. <laughs> hello, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> a seamless Hello, intro once again. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got a couple of housekeeping items before we get on to breaking down uh, the budget. There's a fair bit to talk about with this one. This might be you know, a two or three hour episode. I hope you're all have a cup of tea or whatever beverage of choice. But um, we, we wanted to start by just reminding everyone listening, you've probably heard of but um, if you're an avid listener to the podcast, but ASIC was currently conducting a workforce survey um, about the development of a national workforce strategy, and they're currently seeking consultation. Um, so there's a number of ways to contribute. We'll have a link to the website, but the key one at the moment uh, is uh, there's a consultation document. Um, there are some online uh, information sessions that are happening this week. So as you listen to this, it may be a bit late, but probably most importantly, up until the end of May, uh, there is an online feedback survey. So as we sort of talked about with the NQF review a little while ago, um, they, <laughs> I might go to Leanne and Lisa in a sec for their feedback on filling out the survey, but even if they are a bit interminable and not much fun to do, it is a really big opportunity to contribute to, um, you know, big decisions that are going to be made about the sector and particularly, you know, the educator workforce. But I think, Leanne, you mentioned you may have struggled through the survey uh, recently. What was you? Are you able to give yeah, a, a strong recommendation was, to complete it? I think that was Lisa, actually, that oh. struggled through the survey because I've, I've just been to a um, oh, the info session. Yeah, I've been to the information session and, and uh, read the paper. So... I can't comment on the survey. Lisa, what did you what did you think of the survey? I um I thought it was appalling and difficult and it what I mostly objected to though was the the fact that all of their strategies didn't really amount to anything. Does well that, that yeah, that's that's not great. Can I interrupt this podcast for a minute? Because I need to tell you something really tragic. I've had such technological failure at my house 
that I have a phone that's about to go flat and that's what I'm actually <laughs> recording the podcast on because my laptop broke five minutes ago at the beginning of the podcast and <laughs> I can't get any volume out of my phone unless I have earphones in it and I, so I can't plug it in to charge it. So I'm going to go off air very quickly. Jeez, Fair we enough, better like... get we better get all of Lisa's opinions, and I think she needs some of that job trainer money, digital futures from the budget. <laughs> well, you go and do that, Lisa. We'll we'll banter until until you're back. <laughs> I'm not sure whether I'm going to be able to come back, but I'll do my best. Thank you, Lisa. Um, <laughs> um it it has been a fun night of technical issues, which will be probably even more amusing to listeners when we sort of talk about the second item on the on the housekeeping. But um, I think, yeah, it is a really important reminder that um, the, the although, you know, sometimes it can feel like contributing to these things doesn't have much of an impact and we're also sometimes endlessly consulted, so combination of not feeling heard and also probably asked, uh, being asked too much, um, these opportunities don't come around too often. So the previous workforce survey uh, wrapped up in 2016, I think, at around the same time as the old... Um, PSCs and the, and the old inclusion support funding. Um, so the idea that there is a new workforce strategy being developed uh, is positive. And, you know, there, there is the hope that, you know, educator voices and, you know, feedback around um, engagement in this space will be, will be helpful. Yeah, I agree, Liam. And I think that the, there's one thing to really remember about commenting on these things and putting forward views is if we don't solve our workforce issues shortly, then what we will have is we'll need to have changes to um, our qualifications landscape and requirements, which will mean that we will have, if that if we pull back on any of those things, we'll have an undermining of quality, which will be a very big issue for children, families and educators. And then we're kind of going backwards rather than going forwards. So not to kind of threaten people with that view but I think um, you know if we have an opportunity to comment on something we really have to do that because we in the end we don't want process quality um, for young children to be affected and we fought hard for these things so you know you've just got to keep battling away right? I think that's all we can do. <laughs> That's that's it. That's the end of our podcast for tonight. It's just <laughs> it's just battle on. <laughs> we'll we'll continue on and look. Lisa may be able to uh, to leap in at this point. But the the other thing we we wanted to let um, listeners know uh, is that uh, this will be our last episode for at least you can't at least this a little while. while. Lisa's disconnected. Well, this you will be. This will be forcing her to to join us. We can. Oh. I, I'm going to do this slowly so that she hopefully joins in um, okay. towards the end. But um, we, yes. Yeah, so um, you know, there was there's too much in this budget not to talk about. But we this we've sort of come to a bit of a decision that um, after I don't know how long I think we worked out so you know, almost five years we've been doing this now that um, I have to take put my hand up and take most of the responsibility for um, just needing a bit of a break, particularly from the late nights and the Because the you've editing. done most of the work, Liam, that's why. <laughs> and that's fair enough, fair enough. Which, which is not true. But, uh, yes, it's been a busy is year this year. abandoning us? He is, Lisa. And, why and... didn't anyone tell me? Ah, oh, Lisa, I think <laughs> they did. I think you were just pretending that you didn't know. <laughs> but we... But one one thing that we really wanted to, when when Liam did sort of say that Tom was up on this, he has uh, too many commitments and 
and is obviously overutilised. Um, Lisa and I wanted to make sure there was just one more, just one more, because we wanted to thank um, Liam for an amazing job that he has done in doing this. And, and Lisa and I will often say that we kind of just turn up and do the business and Liam does all the rest. Isn't that right, Lisa? I never actually understand how we just kind of chat for a while and then suddenly it's a podcast. It's like <laughs> magical mystery. So we want to thank you, Liam, for the amazing job that you have done um, and for giving us a chance to have a chat every every fortnight. I mean, at one stage we were doing it every week. How did we ever do that? How did we do that? I honestly don't know. Look, you're you're both too kind and we don't want to make too much of a deal of this. Um uh, but and I think we'll be back. I think what will be say this is not uh, goodbye, but it's au revoir. Or you know, I I I suspect we will not be able to resist talking about <laughs> early education right. for quite hey, a little while. Be but funny if in two weeks time we went, oh, we really want to talk again. <laughs> the government <laughs> announces universal free access to early <laughs> education. We're like, nah, we're on a break. Sorry. <laughs> That seems that seems unlikely, but um, I did I did think it was worth pointing out because it, it kind of won't be a short break. I suspect we we'll probably be gone for for quite a while, um, and there is also the very maybe small possibility that this you know may be the, the the final one as well. But I think given what's kind of been announced in the budget, it's probably not a bad one if this is um, either the last one for a while um, or the last one sort of indefinitely. Um, it's probably not a bad one to talk about. So I think um, we'll leave it there. We'll have a sort of note well, on uh, our various. Oh, just sorry, sorry, Liam. Just Go before you, you leave it there, and I did realise I, I talked over the top of you. I'm sorry. Um, can I just put my that's hand up? Standard my... practice, Carl. Don't worry. Yeah, that's right. It's, I, I, felt, I felt empowered. Um, I was just going to say, Liam, as somebody who has been a listener now, I guess right back from the inception, um, I'm very grateful to the three of you for the podcast you've put out. It's a very distinctive contribution to the um, early childhood sector, and and um, the subjects that you've covered oftentimes aren't covered in the entertaining and um, sacrilegious way uh, elsewhere. And I think that what you've achieved through the podcast... Is he calling is... us sacrilegious? Not you, no. <laughs> well, actually, I am, aren't I? I am saying that you're a bit... <laughs> you skewer the old sacred cow, Lisa, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, look, it's, it's a very, very good podcast, and I fully respect that you need to, um, um, you know, reprioritise and do a few other things, but I... There's a part of me that would hope that on special occasions you might be able to come back out and just drop one for us all to enjoy. Um, but having said that, it is a, it's been a wonderful thing you've all done. So I appreciate it. Oh, God, we should have had Carl on more often. Oh, what were we nice. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's lovely, Carl. We'll, we'll, we'll take the view from Carl as the view from every listener who's ever oh, listened course. to us. Yeah, Thank I just, you. <laughs> I, I guess I've lobbed in here as the Vox Pop for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, at the risk of this becoming too sentimental, um, uh, which, you know, I think we've, we've been on the record of most of our interview episodes about talking about how fun this has been for all of us and um, for, you know, it, I think we're all still surprised most fortnights that there do seem to be quite a lot of people that listen to it and talk to us and engage and, and say hello to us when we're, when we're out in public. So, um, yes, it has it has been a lot of fun. And as I suspect you're probably right, Carl, I, I, we will pop up from time to time. But let's move on to the main meat of the, the episode, which is, uh, so last night as we record this, we're recording this on a Wednesday night, uh, the federal government has announced uh, their new budget. It is... I guess in many ways a surprising budget and a not surprising one. A surprising one in that you know a conservative government is sort of uh, seems to have abandoned 
the debt and deficit uh, discussion we've been having, you know, probably the last 10 years in this country and is really splurging on a few things um, and probably not surprising in that uh, they are pretty desperate to get re-elected and there's probably not much else to do given uh, they have a lot of priorities they need to meet. Some of them are, you know, from uh, the like the aged care uh, royal commission that they're having to spend a lot of money on. Some of them are self-inflicted, so they've not had a good year in terms of um, a whole bunch of policy areas that I think they're now shuttling money out to try and feel feel better about. But uh, in the early education space, there are there are a few quite interesting announcements that I think we're going to break down. I think the way we were sort of going to tackle this is with the four of us here, we're each going to sort of bring something to the table to talk about, which will hopefully just let us sort of cover, um, you know, the, the main aspects of the, the budget. But there'll be links to the budget documents themselves. We'll have a links to um, a few different articles that we, that we um, particularly like. There was even a really good article by some some young journal called Lisa Bryant, who did one pre the budget um, that was really good. So I definitely recommend checking that one out. And we might uh, we might uh, talk more about that when we get to Lisa's point. But as the guest to the podcast, Liam, I, know that, I know that this is a, an oral thing, but if you ever have met me, which I think you have done one or two times, you'd know that I'm not young. Oh, I can, can only disagree, Lisa. Totally <laughs> disagree. Um, so, look, guest to the podcast, Carl. We might turn to you first. Um, what do you? What? What? What sort of? What are the things you want to? We want to sort of start digging into, Carl. Well, let's have a look at the changes to the childcare subsidy, shall we? Can I start with the um, the removal of the childcare subsidy cap, and then possibly we could have a look at the changes that are taking taking place in um, households with more than one children. Um, the just to put you in the frame of mind, when the Jobs for Families legislation was passed all those years ago, there was a childcare subsidy cap that was introduced for families with a household income of over one hundred and eighty nine thousand dollars, and that cap was an, a maximum amount of ten thousand five hundred and sixty dollars in today's money. As of the first of July two thousand and 22, that cap is going to be removed completely. Um, the cap was similar, I guess, in concept to the childcare rebate cap that existed under the old system. However, you could argue that the childcare subsidy cap was kind of less relevant um, in the current model because of the sliding scale for the um, CCS percentage rates, which each family um, will have. And um, I suppose the other point is about that, that the current system has an hourly rate cap built into it. So there's a, absolutely a theoretical maximum that a family can receive in any given year. So from that point of view, um, and given the, I guess, the strong commentary around this cap emerging as a barrier to workforce participation, um, that if it's to be removed, then families may be able to use more, more care. I guess on balance, it's probably probably a good thing. Um, legislatively, it's a very easy thing to do. There is a, uh, a six-step method statement which is applied for all families to figure out how much CCS they're going to get, and this policy would strike out one of those steps completely. There's a couple of other small changes to legislation that they'll need to do, but nothing major, and uh, technically it's very easy to remove as well um, behind the scenes. So it's a fairly it's a fairly straightforward little bit of housekeeping to my mind, and I think it's been pretty well received by the sector. Uh, and to my mind, it's um, it's a it's an improvement. 
Thanks, Carl. I mean, the, the one of the reasons that I'm trying to think back to the, you know those 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 times around the the introduction of the childcare subsidy, um, the the reasoning for having the cap in place at the time, if if I recall, and, and I know one of you will correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of it was around I think this idea of sort of fiscal responsibility that they're you know we want to make sure that oh yes we're going to you know do a much better childcare subsidy system, but you know we're not going to go crazy. Is this the, the the removal of the cap for me seems like an interesting another sort of brick in this? We're kind of ditching the 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 um, the sort of financial responsibility side because I remember with some of Labor's proposals going into the twenty nineteen election and even some of the discussions beforehand, there was just this you know how dare you throw money at you know the, the richest families? The the cap pretty much was you know exclusively a cap on families earning over a certain amount. So that being removed just seems like it does seem like another complete sort of shift away from that mindset that my thinking was, you know, if Labor was proposing this, um, there would be a very different reaction, I think, from the Conservative oh, government that is now proposing absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah, and you can make that as a general comment across the entire budget, I think, um, that if, if Labor tried to pull this one, there'd be, um, you know, the sky falling in. Now, I think that the um, uh, one of the things to bear in mind, though, was that the Productivity Commission had been tasked, ooh, ghastly word, sorry, I said that, with sticking within the funding envelope which was that at that time, if you recall, the CCB, CCR uh, quantum. And I think this was primarily one of the measures which helped keep the, the costs in check. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you there, but that was that was a consideration as well. Um, not that I've gone back and had a look at all of the various speeches that parliamentarians gave when the uh, the bill went through, but that was the that that funding envelope cap was uh, boundary was was really important when they were coming up with the new system. And Carl, this it's going to be over a period of years, isn't it? And there was a discussion about it being, you know, delayed in implementation. What's what's happening with that now? Because I think there's a bit of a people were a bit upset about it, weren't they? So is that still it's still like an extended period in which it's going to be implemented? Um, at this point, it's still slated to come in on the first of July two thousand twenty two, this part. To my mind, I can't see why this couldn't be implemented from the 1st of July this year. I don't see that there would be a lot of difficulty getting the legislation through Parliament in the next eight weeks, and I don't see that there would be any any problem with the, the IT side. But I suspect that what the government want to do is to put both the CCS measures through at the same time not put one forward now and then the other one. And maybe that's my segue to talk about the other one, in fact, because this is um, a bit more controversial. Um, so I might just plow and do that if it's okay, Liam. And in that, go for it. on that matter, it's probably worth that I go back and quote directly from the budget papers and then we'll, we'll unpack it. So the budget papers that came out yesterday had a, had a reference to, quote, increasing childcare subsidy increasing the childcare subsidy rate by 30 percentage points for the second and subsequent children aged five years and under in care up to a maximum CCS rate of 95% for these children commencing on the 11th of July 2022. So there's a bit going on in that paragraph. But to start with, and I guess the most important... I've got a point, headache, Carl. I've got a headache. <laughs> well, let's break it down for you, Liam. Thank um, you. In a nutshell, second and subsequent children in households are going to get more childcare subsidy 
follow provided a bunch of conditions are met. And the first condition is that um, both or, or, or all children need to be in care at the same time. So if one child is three and attending a, a, a centre-based daycare and another child has just gone off to school, this extra childcare subsidy loading won't be applied. They both need to be attending um, childcare settings um, under the age of five at the same time. The way that it's going to work is that the first child in a household will get childcare subsidy calculated on the family's household CCS percentage, as they currently are at the moment. The subsequent children will have a 30% uplift added to that percentage, provided it doesn't exceed 95%. So I'm going to pick a family here. I'm going to pick a family with a household income of $200,000 with two children attending um, a centre-based care provider. The first child is going to get um, childcare subsidy of 50%, and the second child is going to get childcare subsidy of 80%. Um, the effect of this policy basically is that the lower your childcare subsidy percentage, the greatest is the advantage to you. This policy deliberately targets and favours higher income households. So as you can see from that scenario, a, two, a household with uh, income of $200,000 is going to have one child on 50% and the other child on 80%. If you go to the other end of the spectrum and, and have a household with um, uh, an income of 60,000, where um, one child is getting 85, uh, or sorry, with both children getting 85%, the uplift for the second child, second child is only going to go to 95%. It's only going to be a 10% uplift. So you can see how um, numerically, there's going to be um, a greater advantage for uh, wealthier families. So, the, uh, to me, to me, I find that to be um, to be a bit of a, a bit of a perverse situation. I don't know that this is what you would call an equitable um, policy. And if I could make one further thing, then we can have a further comment, if you like. Aside from being inequitable, in my mind, this is potentially a very, very complex change to technically implement. And the reason is because um, for any household or any family that has children attending different services or has children in the same service or different services where they're paying different hourly rates or they have children attending services for different hours per week, then you've got this immediate complexity which arises, which is you need to choose which of the children is going to be getting the 30% uplift. And the basic decision comes down to, are you going to be giving this 30% uplift for second and subsequent children to the child who started second in a service? Or is it going to be the youngest child in a household? Or is it going to be the child who um, attends the least number of days or attends the most number of days? And is that going to be determined by the system itself or is there going to be some mechanism given to families to go back and choose which of their children is going to get this uplift? Um, and there's, there are further complications that arise from that, but I might just leave it at that because it's actually a pretty pretty complicated thing to get your head around. So to my mind, it's, it's fundamentally inequitable and it is ridiculously complex in the way that it needs to be implemented.
But, but I thought that the childcare subsidy system was supposed to make a complex system uncomplex. <laughs> I'll take this as a comment, Lisa. I think we've had this before, haven't we? Like this is this is something that um, any I would have thought that anybody developing a policy, ha uh, having sat down with somebody who needed to work out how to implement it, would have come away from that conversation after half an hour, going, "Yeah, this is going to be quite involved." Um, so when I first saw this, when this when, when we were getting the pre-budget announcements coming through, I, look, I glanced at this and I thought, "Oh, this doesn't seem to be to be too complicated." You know, there's far ahead. Subsequent children get, you know, thirty percent uplift, and off we go. But the more I've looked at it, the more I've thought this is bonkers, and I, I can't see how they could get this in place for, um, for for July this year. I, I accept that. I can see how they have it in place for July twenty twenty two, and to come back to to, to Leanne's point, um, I think that this is why the whole package has been kicked down the road. Is that this is going to be pretty hairy to do? Can I just read um, a bit from uh, a thing from Frydenberg, which suggests that he might, in fact, agree with you, Carl? It says, defending the... Uh, this is from the Daily Telegraph, I should say. Defending the delay, Mr Frydenberg told reporters in the budget lockup that he hoped the policy could be introduced sooner if possible. But again, there are technical issues with regard to changing IT and computer systems, he said. <laughs> One of the issues is the complexity of the policy because it only applies to children age five and under and only when you have two kids in care at the same time. That means if your older children start attending school, you miss out on the 95% rebate. Yeah, well, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? Um, I, I wonder if... This, this, there's something curious about the, the trajectory of all of this. This has been, this has come out very quickly, and now it's been locked in and embedded in the budget. So you know, it's not just, this is not just policy that you can amend on on the run as you get, you know, critical feedback through the media. Um, they've uh, they've kind of locked themselves into a particular format, and I don't quite know where they'll go with this because, to my mind, if they wanted to achieve this outcome, and I, I I'm not for it personally, but if they wanted to achieve this. Then all you would do is, I would have thought, go back and start tinkering around with the the taper rates. You know, if they want to give more money to the the well-off middle class, well, raise raise the rate from fifty percent to sixty-five or something. So this is a this is a very, to my mind, this is a really cack-handed way of doing a stupid policy. So what do you think is the motivation for it then? Oh well, this will be very very appealing politically in some quarters. Um, if they can pull it off, and I'm sure they will be able to pull it off with a year's notice, you know, it's got 14 months to figure it out. This is the sort of thing which I think will um, appeal to a, um, uh, a a group of people who would be more inclined to vote liberal in this policy, I would think, Leanne. I think it's mm. simple as that. Mm -hmm. But mm. it's such a small number that will actually get affected by it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's a combination of the two things here. I would have thought that taking off the rate cap um, would have been sufficient in itself. Um, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty generous um, uh, turnaround of, of, of fortune for someone on uh, a household on $200,000. To come along and do this on top is um, is, is really loading it up. Uh, but uh, sorry, Carl, don't you think it's because they want women to have more children? Look, if you have more children, you'll get cheaper childcare. 
Or is it because someone in the department's got two children and they went, my God, the cost of childcare is ridiculous. Well, you know what's ironic about it is this is sort of going back to one of the things that was chucked out with the CCB system, which is the, the multi-child rate. Yeah. Do, do you remember that? Um, so... Yes. Those two. Mm. Yeah. Bringing back the complexity that they got rid of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Is that, is that hysterical laughter there, Carl? Pretty, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, like I'm being a bit loose with my language and being a bit, you know, a bit, a bit, a bit emotional about it. But I mean, honestly, um, I, I think that they've done themselves a disservice by framing their policy in in this way to achieve this end. And I don't know whether they just hadn't thought this through because it sounds it sounds simple enough on the face of it, right? You go, oh, first child gets amount, second child gets more. But then when you unpack all of that, you're going, yeah which is the first child and which is the second child starts to become an existential question when one child may get more than the other if you put a loading on them. Gosh. Well, the, the other thing that occurred to me with this, and I remember we talked about this, uh, the lead up to the CCS was, um, well, I mean, uh, echoing the points around complexity, which I will, you know, I'll be making that point till you know, I'm ranting in a care home somewhere. But the... The the um the the onus on communicating this to families we know is going to fall on services yeah. who have already had to go through the childcare subsidy changes who already have to explain to people the nonsense about the um taper rates and all this kind of stuff and now they're going to have I I am seriously I'm getting panic attacks having imagining having the emails I'm going to have to send out about managing your your second child versus your first one it's just it's I, I seriously doubt we're going to get some comprehensive communication strategy and that Services Australia are going to take the lead on on sorting this out with families. But Lisa was saying that it's a small number of families. So how many, like, has anybody done that? I suppose we wouldn't know, but ha have there been any numbers done on how many would be included in this? Oh, I don't have a sense. Sorry, Leanne. Mm. So it's a very targeted, it's, it's going to be a multi-million dollar campaign that will chew up all the... Um, the department said 250,000, but there was a very interesting um, article in the Murdoch papers today that suggested it would be way less than that. Um, I think, yeah, they were saying one measure would be like about 22,000 people. Well, there we go. I mean, that that just makes the whole thing that that bit much, that bit more sillier. If they're going to go through all of this change, not spend anywhere near the quantum that they've budgeted, and um, all this all this grief for so few people. <laughs> well, look, we could we could probably spend the entire episode talking about this and. Um, it would be more than a hint of we told you so about the complexity of the system, but um, let's we, we, we're going to be the bigger person and uh, move on from that. But because I think the other, um, the probably the second biggest thing to talk about is some of the changes to uh, universal access to preschool funding. And I know, um, I think Lisa's going to going to um, introduce that one for us before we we begin discussing. So, what's the sort of big takeaways from you for that one, Lisa? Oh, look, I'd love to tell you what my big takeaways are, but. In addition to my previous technical problems, we've now had a suburb-wide blackout where I am, so I'm sitting here recording this episode off my iPhone 
in total darkness other than a candle. Oh, <laughs> my God. They seriously did not want you to record this episode, Lisa. No, and there's severe thunderstorms, so I apologise for the sound interference. Um, and so I can't get to any of my notes, but I can kind of give you the broad picture thing without any facts or figures, which is... They've given an agreement that they've agreed to fund um, a, a preschool education for four-year-olds or give the money to the states to fund preschool education for four-year-olds for four whole years and possibly even further on. But it comes with two caveats. And it's kind of, it's not big money. It's pretty much the same as what they've been doing it year by year. But the two caveats are, or three caveats. One is that the states have to pass on a per child rate to long daycare services as well as preschools, which sounds like a great thing. You know, why shouldn't, um, you know, where, no matter where a child is, why shouldn't they get um, funding from the Commonwealth towards their preschool education? But in reality, it means some states, like um, New South Wales and Western Australia, that don't actually fund their preschools well enough um, and rely on that money from the feds to prop up their funding of their preschool education, that money will be taken away from dedicated preschools and will now be spread amongst preschools and long daycare centres. Um so, you know, that's sad. Um, uh, yeah, well, I think that's sad. Um, the other caveats are that um, the states have to get attendance up so that merely funding them, funding the states for preschool education isn't enough. They're saying that the states have to work out a way to ensure that every child that's funded actually goes to that preschool and gets that education. Um, and this is always something that the Commonwealth has had a bee in their bonnet about since the very first universal access funding agreement, and I'm not actually sure why they've got such a bee in their bonnet about it, but, yeah, they have. So um, that's the second caveat. The third caveat is that they actually sign a new funding agreement, so it's not just an extension on the old universal access funding agreement. There'll be a whole new one. And the final caveat... Oh, did you hear that thunder? It's very loud here. Very exciting. <laughs> it's not This here. is the most dangerous episode we've, we've ever recorded. <laughs> yes. We're worried for Lisa's safety. <laughs> um, the final caveat, and the one that I think is the saddest, is that they'll only fund it if it's proved, if, you know, if, if there can be um, ways of proving that preschool ed education actually gets children ready for school. Mm. So, in other words, it sounds to me like they're going to run some sort of a test to you know, ensure that children that went to preschool education, you know, like, yeah, um, perfectly capable of sitting up straight in school and filling out worksheets and all the other exciting things that happen to children when they go to school. I'm joking. We've got no idea what that, um, what that, you know, assessment process would look like, what that testing of 
whether or not preschool does prepare children for school would involve. But it does sound like a bit of a schoolification of preschool or at the very least linking preschool education with one purpose only, which is school preparation. And I think that's very sad. Well, that, and that's something that there will have to be pushed back on because, you know, there, there should be no pre-school testing or anything like that. That would be horrendous, wouldn't it? Yes, definitely. But we, we don't know. We don't know whether that's going to happen, but that's the general tone, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, yes. And I think, you know, the, the like, the scary thing is that it involves an agreement between the feds and the states, and so those agreements will be signed, and then even if there's a change of government, they tend not to go back and change too much about these kind of partnership agreements. So, um, yeah, we, <laughs> we don't know what will happen. Um, one of the things that I just want to mention before we pass on to you two to say your bits is someone, um, uh, Gender Equity Victoria, have put out a wonderful little infographic tonight and it shows kind of like, you know, the importance of this compared to, you know, um, compared to what what has happened in some other areas. So childcare funding, the, the bit that um, Carl was talking about, not the preschool funding, got $1.7 and business um, tax write-offs, $180, oh, sorry, $18 billion. So $18 billion compared to $1.7 billion. But which one have you heard about in the papers? It is stark, isn't it? Sorry? It, it is stark, like the difference. I remember seeing that infographic. I'll try and find it and put it in the show notes. But it is, it is when you see it side by side, the yeah, it is pretty stark. It is. And the other thing that, of course, that the preschool education agreement or announcement did when putting it next to the childcare announcement is that it further intensified the idea that there's two separate children uh, systems, preschool and childcare. Yeah. See, it's, it's interesting, and I think we've, we've still got a couple of things we want to bring. I think the other two items probably won't have as much discussion point, but I, I, I found this this aspect of the budget announcement probably the most fascinating for me. The childcare subsidy stuff was kind of all spoiled in the media beforehand, and you can kind of roll your eyes and go, well, why are they making it more complicated? The preschool funding stuff, I, I, your point about this being really running sore for almost everyone for so long um, is is really interesting. So part of me when I saw the four-year funding extension, if I just ignore everything else, go, well, you know, that's a positive. At least the federal government, even that, they have now gone, we can't keep doing this year on year. They are clearly going to put some caveats on the federal government. My What I think will be an interesting time for the sector over the next little while is um, this will lead to some really interesting discussions and the political ideologies are sit sit underneath it will obviously create challenges. But if we sort of put all that, all that apart, I think as a sector we do have to accept there probably needs to be some assessment of the 
the importance of early childhood education. So we spent a lot of our time talking about the research and why that should be used for investment in early education. We 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 do need to have some sort of agreement on an ethical rights based and play based uh, and teach and you know child teacher led way of saying we want we want to be able to say here is the benefit of early education. So I'm I'm not against assessment full stop. Um, I think we have to be very careful about who's doing it, why it's set up and what the, you know, the outcome is looking for. And if all we are assessing is school readiness and that is an issue, but if we are assessing things that are maybe linked to, you know, the, the Australian early development census, or we're looking at, you know, particular improvements around there, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, is it? Um, I think if we're, I think it's a couple of different things because I think in one instance where we're trying to, consider whether early childhood education does what what has been proven over and over to to do but we kind of want some we want something that happens here that gives us that indication but when we're talking about eh, there, there's so many other structural elements that have an influence on um, children's outcome in any of those things also in the Australian early development um, census as well and, and the things in those. So I think in some ways it's a couple of different things, but if all we're testing is children's readiness to go to school and yet there's still a lot of debate around what those early years of school should look like, then we, we've got to have a much bigger debate about what education looks like and that could take many years. I think that would be a debate I'm worth having. Yeah. Going right. Oh, sorry, Lisa, what was that? I said I feel like it's an ongoing debate. Yeah, yeah. We I, well, look, we definitely talked about it in the podcast before, so I don't think we want to dwell on it too much. The other thing that I find really interesting in is um, the, the well, there's a couple of the idea that the funding will follow the child and not necessarily the setting. Now, there's no sort of explanatory detail in the budget there, but that will, in many cases, have a pretty dramatic impact on how some of the states and territories roll out the funding. Yes. Sorry. Yes. I just. I, I think there's, there's there's a lot there's a lot to that, and I think that one of the one of the biggest challenges that we've had in the last however many years is that every time there's a good system of operational funding, it gets deconstructed, um, and it it creates problems for service continuity and for planning for services and and all of those things. So I think, you know, that that one puts a bit of fear in my heart. Look, why don't we just take the state that has the best provision, which is obviously New South Wales, and we'll just roll that out across <laughs> the country. Is that okay with everyone? No. <laughs> That's an easy joke. Victoria, please. <laughs> Are you telling me Victoria does some education stuff better than New South Wales, Lisa? Um, why, is, why have you never brought this up before? <laughs> Um, all right. The, the, I think the other thing, the the, the participation versus attendance thing, yes. it is, it is, it, it look, it's one of those challenges, the, the, the federal government's obsession with it and their sort of failure to maybe articulate exactly why, but it, that is an issue. Like, I think if we, if, if we, the, the participation, and if we look at particularly Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander attendance, now I think there are broader issues than this specific amount of funding. So the closure of budget-based funded services, the lack of support for community-led initiatives around early education. But 
I think there is a legitimate need to say, well, look, if we're not meeting participation rates and there has to be surely a joint approach to fix that. I think the problem is the federal government have a sort of blunt sort of stick approach, which is, well, states, you know, do better or we take your funding away, which isn't probably not the best way to go about it. Yeah, and it's it's probably worth kind of explaining the difference between enrolment and participation as well, yep. because yep. that's the the challenge is that the there's an enrolment rate and then the participation is measured over a particular period of time, and that can often be, um, you know, it, it can be a, a a time where there is lower attendance at that time, and so this is where the participation is is measured, and and it's not over the entire period of the child's kind of life in a, a setting um, and those things that you're talking about as well, Liam, where children may have periods of, of non-attendance and there are other structural um, aspects of that. So it's, it is a, it's a challenge because, of course, nobody thinks that anybody should pay for something that they're not getting. I mean, that's the way that we've positioned the world. And you can see why maybe the federal government feels a bit miffed about it. And apart from the history of, of some states not spending the money that they've been given, one that shall be, remain nameless. Um, but it is, you know, I think that it, it's much more about the systems that are in place that, that create some challenges around the participation measurements. Yeah, look, absolutely. And it, it, we definitely, if people look back through the archive of the, of the podcast, um, this is episode 146, we've definitely tackled these these issues individually. So um, it might be worth seeking those out. But um, yeah, it was, a, it was probably the most unexpected part of the budget for me was the universal access I know, stuff. and if we'd heard this like four, four years ago, how much would we have been rejoicing? <laughs> <laughs> we wouldn't have had anything to talk about over the last four years. It would have been a very short series of podcasts. Um, but look, we've uh, we're we're rapidly approaching the the sort of hour mark, so we might uh, turn to the last two points, which I think are less uh, intensive, um, uh, which probably says quite a lot uh, from from about the federal government. But um, Leanne, I think you were going to talk about some of the I was about to say some of the workforce initiatives, but I, I, that might be generous to call them workforce is, initiatives. I think that is generous, especially as I was when I was looking at um, as I said, you know, when I was having a look at. at things for tonight and I thought oh there are quite a few initiatives and then realizing that I was actually looking at last year's um, budget which I must have completely missed in the middle of COVID but there were and I don't even know whether those things came to fruition but really the the um and and searching around in some of I don't usually go to the Australian Financial Review for um my uh, information but I like the fact that they've said universities have been shunned in this budget which they continue to be to be shunned um which means that there's no additional sort of funding there for early childhood teacher qualifications which are the 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 biggest need at at, you know, up ahead. But I digress because we're actually talking about what was in the budget rather than what wasn't in it. And the main thing is uh, the, the job trainer, which is um, for a targets 18 to 24-year-olds. And there's been 500 million committed to this uh, with, with what has to be matching funds from the states. And of course, that's not just for early childhood qualifications. It's for a range of, of qualifications um, that relate to the aged care sector and, and uh, digital skills. But within that framework, there are certificate threes and diploma qualifications. So 
there is this opportunity here for uh, that age group to take up uh, those qualifications and clearly that's still an area of need so we should be pleased to see that that is um, you know that that's there but as I said it's not really going to solve our long-term workforce issues and the critical issue right now next to the affordability one is workforce uh, so this is not a budget that does a whole lot for that. Yes, um, I like that. Yes, I did like that tone, Liam. We should be pleased. So we will, <laughs> we will, uh, we, we will, I guess, take what we can get. But um, yes, I think we're going to do a bit of a section at right at the end, fairly quickly, on maybe what was missed from the budget, which we might circle. Um, we might circle back to this. But what, yeah, so what I found interesting about this was I've, um, in some of my additional work uh, with my day job at the moment, I'm sort of doing some work in the aged care space as well. So having to, I had to look at the budget mm. um, in terms of the aged care investment, and there were some initiatives around workforce. Um, what most interested me was some direct payments to uh, to aged care workers, which surprised me because the federal government has sort of said time and time and time again, they, you know, they can't get involved in wage increases for specific sectors and and it's all, you know, increasing educated wages is too hard and it's a matter for fair work. And it seems like, well, when, when the Royal Commission is telling you that there's a big problem, it seems like suddenly there actually is a fairly simple mechanism to do that. So I'm not, so I think that opens up the, maybe the field for, for future budgets to say, well, hang on, you know, this is something that, that can happen. Yeah, that's a it's a great point because there are so many alignments between the aged care workforce and the early childhood workforce. M many of the same uh, challenges and and um, you know obviously with a royal commission you've got to do something big, right? So this is this is the the outcome. But I, I've, what I also find interesting too is I feel it's really still kind of pitching the the um, sector the the TAFE sector or the, you know, that RTO sector against the university sector. And it, it it's like we need a much better, much better amount of funding that goes into both of those sectors with the idea that we would, we would provide um, money for people to get a certificate three and a diploma and then move into an, into a degree qualification because these are the things that we know people need to do is go on that, that continuum. And if we do what is this has done, they're kind of stopping when they get to the diploma. And that's in in the best world possible, we would see that lovely continuum on of, of growing people's knowledge and skills and having a, a great influence on children's outcomes. Yep, absolutely. Um, well, let's... Carl, Lisa, unless you had anything more to add to the to the workforce stuff, we might move on to the last point. Oh, can oh. I just really quickly plug that people have to do the ASEQA workforce survey because some of the things in the workforce, um, uh, uh, the draft kind of ideas that have come up in the workforce plan are pretty nuts, so everyone needs to have their say. Otherwise... We'll have a, a nuts workforce plan that's very strong on well-being and not very strong on, ooh, what's that other issue in, in our sector? Mm, pay. 
it's more talking down of the sector, Lisa. And we've been we've been in trouble for that recently. <laughs> so we probably need to be careful there. I can be a childcare worker, in girls and boys. We'll call them childcare worker because that's really the correct name. And you can earn lots and lots and lots of money. It's the best paid profession in Australia. Oh dear, that was very good. Barely a hint of sarcasm. So I think you did. You done a great job. But um, <laughs> Carl, did you have any thoughts on the workforce stuff? Oh look, no. I thought the end captured that. Um, captured it really, really well. It's, it's great listening to her talk about it. No, I've got nothing else to add. Wonderful. Well, then that leaves the last point for me, which is clearly the most exciting announcement in the budget and not at all strange or odd. And I certainly don't feel like I'm missing something from this announcement. But um, as the government tends to do in most of their budgets, they've announced that they're smashing, you know, red tape, they're cutting us way through bureaucracy. Um, but all they seem to have announced is, uh, one, they're going to combine two websites into one. They haven't actually said which websites, by the way. I think I'm stealing from Leanne and uh, Lisa and Carl when they decided it was probably most likely the childcarefinder.gov.au website and the CEQA starting blocks website. So they're going to combine those into one, which will you know, obviously have a dramatic and huge impact on admin for services somehow. I don't know how. Um, and they're going to be piloting some programs around compliance and fraud. So, you know, Rort Alert lives um, in this last episode for a while. We managed to get a Rort Alert in. Um, it should have been an, an R&R um, episode, Rort and Red Tape. Rort and Red Tape. I just, I honestly, not to go on a rant here, I, I honestly feel like I'm missing something from these announcements. How on earth does this remove Red Tape from anyone? <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> yeah, Lynn, and it's... you didn't read it clearly enough. It's reducing the administrative burden on providers. How, Lisa? <laughs> I'm, I'm a, so I work for a provider. I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure what this does for me. If I remember the six years. Report something twice. I don't report it twice now. But it thinks you're reporting something twice. Oh, my God. The bit that scares me is that they're going to pilot a project to share data and undertake joint monitoring and compliance, the fraud bit. Because, um, yeah, like, why can't they do that without announcing it? Why can't the state and the federal government that both run this bizarre education and care system already share data. Yeah, all good questions, Lisa, all good questions. <laughs> clearly, clearly none that we can answer tonight. <laughs> but is it is it quite a lot of money, Liam, for the um for the website? Uh for the for the new website? I don't think it's a huge amount. I'm looking at my quick notes. I don't think so. It is $12.6 million. See, uh, this I reckon this that's a lot. That's a well, lot. Well, it's an investment of 12.6 over four years. Yeah, but, but don't you reckon but a that's student, a lot to combine a, a couple of websites? A WordPress site could do something oh. <laughs> I can guarantee that I can write the website. Carl can program the website. You two can be quality control on the website. And we'll do it for twelve point five million. 
That's right. Lisa, don't, don't give up. So we, we've told people we're pausing the podcast because I'm too busy. We can't tell them that we're pausing it so that we can go into the tendering for a government website business. Do that. Actually, the, the other thing that we can do, which I completely forgot to mention, was that there's going to be a big kind of promotional um, e- efforts to get this job job trainer um, stuff out there. And it's going to you know, be quite a lot of money actually to promote it. So maybe that's something else we can get in on as well. We got a rich future in consultancy here. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> chat after the podcast. But um, uh, so look, I think yeah. So there, there. Look, I think we've we've covered the major parts of the budget. One of the things we wanted to do as well was probably tackle some of the things that either didn't have enough in the budget or maybe were missed from the budget um, altogether. And um, I think, given this was Lisa's very sensible idea, I didn't know if you wanted to to run through them quickly, Lisa, or at least kick us off. What do you think's the the biggest thing that's missing from last night's budget announcement? Obviously, obviously, I think the you know the biggest thing is serious stuff about workforce, um, about our workforce in particular, because we're more and more services are saying that they can't get enough staff. And I I don't know whether any of you saw that the 7.30 report actually picked this up last week. And so if the 7.30 report is reporting that, you know, services can't get enough staff, then it's pretty bad. And services everywhere are saying the quality of the applicants that they're getting is bad, they're not getting as many applicants, you know. Like this is, you know, um, yeah, this is really sad, and it they could have done something in the budget about workforce. Yeah, that that's the one that really worries me too, Lisa, and and I do actually feel that it is the most critical issue, and in that we face in in the sector right now is the the workforce aspects, and I and it, I do lie awake a little bit and worry about it because. I feel that we can undermine all of the wonderful gains we've made. Now, I know that there is a playbook for a good future for the workforce, and that is the productivity <laughs> inquiry uh, from uh, 2011. Uh, it wouldn't, yeah, this, it, this is all feeling like the, the closing of a circle. That's lovely. It's lovely. I dare you to copy and paste the link to that into the ASEQA workforce survey in every single question where they say, have you got everything <laughs> to say? <laughs> well, I can't do it now, can I? And do it anonymously because that would be <laughs> far too obvious. But I still maintain, okay, there needs to be a whole lot more, you know, of tweaking of that, but I still maintain that was the, the ultimate playbook and I cannot let the workforce issue go, nor this episode go without mentioning it. I just gumbled up I'm picturing the people at a sequel just going, this is a really strange entry for someone called Dr. G- Guyanne Libs, <laughs> yeah. who's just endlessly posting about the Productivity Commission report. <laughs> Don't worry. Speaking of Productivity Commission reports, Carl sent me half a chunk of the other Productivity Commission report today. I'm going, oh, Carl, that was so many years ago. You're making me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, was it 2015 it came down, I think? Long time ago. Long, yeah. long time ago. But it just goes to show you, though, when they're in the, when the, the other things. Oh, sorry. No, no, you go. Go ahead, Lisa. The other things that I thought um, the budget should have included was obviously universal free childcare, 
getting rid of the preschool childcare divide and getting rid of the bloody activity test. Yes, Good please. Yes, Good please. summary. Good summary. Oh, well, um, I thought it might be, we put out a bit of a call for questions. We did leave it a bit late. Um, so we, we just got one back. So um, I want to thank a big, big thanks to Jess Lee. I think it's probably not a bad way to wrap up the questions. But um, so her question is more of a sort of a, a nice combination of question and statement. But she says, no support for educators in budget 2021. No surprise. What would the early education sector look like if instead of more government funding that goes to shareholders, services converted to not-for-profit and redistributed revenue in fair wages? and quality improvement seems like a no-brainer. Uh, I don't really have anything to add to that, Jess. I think that would be a much uh, much nicer sector and world to live in. It sure would. I reckon we should make Jess Minister immediately. She got my vote. Yeah, definitely. Sure. Yep. All right. Well, I think we've, we've torn this to pieces as much as possible, so we... we want to thank Carl again for, for joining us. So um, Carl tends to join us on these detailed uh, budget uh, assassination episodes. So we're very, we're very grateful for that, very Carl, great. that you're bringing your, uh, oh, you're, you're your, your skills been, around that. It's been great to be, thank you, Liam. It's been great to be here tonight and um, a little bit sad as well, can I say, to be uh, in your, in your hiatus episode. Uh, <laughs> but, but I appreciate, I appreciate the invitation. It's great to come and chat to you all. Look, I'm just I'm, I'm impressed we made it this far without getting cancelled. So you know, we're just we're, we're just on hiatus. We can we can always come back at some point. Uh, you realise that there'll be some people listening to this now going, "Yahoo!" Oh, thank oh. God. How did they last this long? Eight listen to us. <laughs> but that's all right. But uh, look, until we until we are back in your podcast feeds next time, thank you everyone who's listening. Um, thank you to. Leanne and Lisa for doing this with me for, for so long and agreeing for this kind of crazy idea we had five years ago. Um, we will inevitably be back at some point, but um, all the best. Keep bantering, um, keep advocating, um, and keep fighting for all the, all, the, all the good things that need to happen in the sector. We'll be, yes. uh, hope we have a much better budget next year. Yeah, so true. What an awesome sector. And, um, yeah, I, I agree, Liam. Keep at it, everybody. And thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.